Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. I'm sure that as a Bible reader you're familiar with the famous passage known as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus there gave the marching orders to his apostles and thus to his church until the end of the age when he would come back to establish the kingdom of God. Jesus there told the apostles to teach in all the world, to all the nations, everything that he had taught them. They were to relay to the people of every nation across the world the exact teachings that Jesus had taught them. It would be reasonable then to turn to the very next page in our Bible, to chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, to see where Jesus began with his teaching. If, in fact, the Great Commission mandates the teaching of everything that Jesus taught worldwide to people of all the nations, it is only common sense that we would turn to the very beginning of the teaching of Jesus to see what we're supposed to do as Christians under the leadership and the lordship of Jesus the Messiah. Well, in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, just one page ahead of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we find the following opening salvo from the Messiah as he initiated his ministry in Galilee. Jesus came into Galilee, we read there, and said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. Believe in the message of the kingdom of God. Jesus called his message God's gospel. In Mark 1 verse 14, he then told people to repent, that's to say to change their lifestyle, to change their whole way of thinking, to orientate their lives to a new horizon, a new set of perspectives, a new set of goals, to repent and to believe in the gospel. The response which Jesus sought from his audience there clearly involved a complete commitment to the truth of Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God was on the horizon, that the kingdom of God was approaching. You notice that Jesus did not say that the kingdom of God had come. He said that it was at hand. And he urged his audiences to prepare for that great event with all urgency. Now, the plain fact of the matter is that Jesus invited here belief in God's plan, God's kingdom plan. God's great design for restoring law and order, peace and justice across this very troubled planet of ours. There really is no reason for confusion at all about the basic and primary meaning of this famous term, Kingdom of God. Anybody who knew the book of Daniel would have found in chapter 2 of Daniel and verse 44 a very plain statement about the meaning of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. And those two terms are absolutely interchangeable. There's no difference in meaning at all between them. Only Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke refer always to the kingdom of God. Those are interchangeable and convertible terms. There's no difference in meaning between them. In Daniel 2.44, we read of a time coming when a kingdom of heaven a kingdom from heaven, God's kingdom, would replace the evil empires of mankind. 
Now, obviously, the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, described there in Daniel 2, verse 44, is to be every bit as much a world empire as the four beast-like world empires that precede it in that chapter 2 of Daniel. That's the basic primary and fundamental meaning of the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God was to be a political empire, a revolutionary government established by God using his son, the Messiah, as his agent and superseding once and for all and definitively previous political empires founded on the ways of man. That's what the kingdom of God clearly means, not only in the book of Daniel, but throughout the prophets. So when Jesus came announcing the near approach of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, there was absolutely no doubt in the minds of his first century Jewish audience about what that meant. It is only when we in the 20th century become clear that Jesus was announcing a revolutionary political kingdom, nevertheless, however, a spiritual kingdom, because founded on good spiritual principles, it's only when we become clear on that basic terminology of Jesus that we can begin to relate intelligently to his primary and fundamental demand to us to believe in that kingdom of God. Now, why would Jesus insist on belief in the good news or gospel about the kingdom of God as the basis of discipleship? Well, clearly the issue is simply this. God has a plan. And God is looking for men and women to come into line with his plan, to cooperate with it. And, of course, that entails, firstly, believing in the truth of that plan. It's not sufficient just to believe that God exists. It's not sufficient even just to believe that God exists and that we should love our neighbors. There's more to Christianity than that. The fact is that we're supposed to embrace and commit ourselves to and believe with intelligence in God's great restoration plan, his kingdom project, his grand design for the restoration of just order and peace to this earth when he sends Jesus Christ back to this earth to establish the messianic kingdom spoken of not only by Daniel but by all the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. We must insist then that the term kingdom of God, as it would have been heard, by Jesus' first-century Jewish audience, meant a dominion over a territory. It is really nonsense to try to get rid of the territorial idea in the kingdom of God, not only because all the prophets of the Hebrew Bible had constantly spoken of a territorial kingdom, a dominion by God, stretching across the far corners of our globe, but Jesus himself had reaffirmed and confirmed the idea of territory when he promised in Matthew 5, 5, that the meek would have the earth or the land as their inheritance, and in the same breath Jesus had spoken of the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit were those who were going to gain access to the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. And in the very same context, Jesus spoke of the meek who would inherit the earth. It isn't difficult to see then that by kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, Jesus meant the earth renewed and purified in the future. That was to be the inheritance of the faithful. Let me refer to another critically important passage from the Hebrew Bible in the book of Isaiah, which very clearly pictures that coming kingdom, which was at the heart of Jesus' gospel. I'm referring here to Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7, 
we read these famous words, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news or gospel, who announce peace and bring the gospel of happiness, who announce salvation and say to Zion or Jerusalem, Your God reigns. Now we know from ancient Jewish commentary that the phrase, Your God reigns, meant the time is coming when the kingdom of God is going to be revealed. Now notice then the context in which that kingdom is going to appear. Verse 8 of Isaiah 52. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion or Jerusalem. So the kingdom of God has to do with the restoration of Jerusalem to a condition of peace and prosperity. Verse 9 reads as follows, Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, so that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. May see, in other words, the coming of the kingdom. There's coming a time, according to the prophet here, that Jerusalem is going to be restored to its pristine condition. It will have been wasted at the time when this kingdom of God intervenes. But the point of the kingdom is to bring salvation to Jerusalem and redemption to the people of Israel. And the whole earth, verse 10 says, the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, what we discover from these most important passages in regard to the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is a visible event a material event, one which will be experienced by the entirety of the earth. It has to do with a cataclysmic intervention by God. And as we read in Daniel 2.44, there's a mysterious stone which crushes at one blow all of the previously existing evil empires of mankind. This is not a silently progressing kingdom. It has nothing to do with evolution. It has everything to do with revolution. The kingdom of God is to come with a mighty intervention from God. It has to do, in the Hebrew prophets, with the day of the Lord, the time when God takes on with all the force and the power of his majesty the opposing forces of mankind. Let me point you to another important passage in the Hebrew Bible regarding this event of the kingdom of God so dear to Jesus, in fact, at the very heart of his gospel message. In the little book of Obadiah, we read of the day of the Lord, which is drawing near on all the nations, in verse 15 of Obadiah. But in verse 17, we read that on Mount Zion, that's in Jerusalem, of course, that's geographical Jerusalem in the Middle East, on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and Mount Zion will become holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And so you see there that Israel is going to be reinstated in her own territory. And I might add, the prophet is not discussing events occurring in our own time when Israel has obviously not accepted Jesus as Messiah. He's not discussing the political struggles of the 1990s in which Israel is involved with conflict with her neighbors. No, he's talking about a time after the day of the Lord after the second coming of Jesus, when Israel will have repented as a nation and will then be entitled 
to dwell securely and safely in her own land restored. Now, when that great event happens, when Israel is restored, when the enemies of Israel have been ousted from the land finally and forever, then we may expect the fulfillment of the 21st verse of Obadiah. And this is the verse which bears on the critical issue of the kingdom of God. Verse 21 says this, Deliverers or saviors will ascend Mount Zion, will go up to Jerusalem, in other words, to administer the mountain or the nation of Edom, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. God's kingdom, in other words, will have arrived. From these texts and many others, we see that the kingdom of God, it would have been understood in the teaching of Jesus in his gospel announcement, is a thoroughly political kingdom, nevertheless spiritual, because it's going to be administered by Jesus Christ, who at that time will have returned from heaven. Now, Christianity is an invitation to you to prepare now for a place in that kingdom as a co-regent and co-ruler with Jesus. Jesus is recruiting members and executives of that kingdom to assist him in the business of governing the world at that time. Don't you know that the saints are going to govern the world, said Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, and if the world is to come under your jurisdiction, are you unable to settle your own affairs in church? Such was the clarity and the reality of the Christian hope for the great Apostle Paul. We invite you to check our findings carefully in your own Bible study at home, and join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.